to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson. Today, coming to you from our office in Las Vegas. I traded Phoenix for Las Vegas this week, hoping uh, for some cooler temperatures, and it just did not work out. Derek, Derek, our guest today, is he wants to tell me that two degrees difference should should make a difference to the way that I feel, but it's just it's just not working. So. If this is the first time you're listening to our episode, welcome, uh, or to our podcast, welcome, and we're glad that you're here. Today's guest is Derek Turner. Derek is, uh, I would call him a serial entrepreneur. He recently did an acquisition, and he's done some other acquisitions and and uh, had some other transactions in the past that we're going to unpack and talk about. So Derek Turner is the owner of Rolla Shield in Tempe, Arizona. Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me, Austin. Yeah, Derek, excited to unpack this with you. It's uh, you know we've we've known each other for a couple of months. You and I met, and then you and I are actually in a different group together where we kind of talk about different opportunities from a business standpoint. But looking forward to kind of talking to you for about forty-five minutes or so about what you've what you've done here uh, currently and what you did in the past, and, and kind of unpacking that. So it's going to be fun. Great, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so let's start first by. Uh, Telling, you know, having you tell us a little bit about you personally. So, you know, we'll get into the business stuff, a lot of stuff to cover there, but where'd you grow up? What was life like for you growing up? Where'd you go to school if you went, you know, if you went and got a college education? Do you have a wife or a spouse or a, or a partner? Do you have any kids, any of those sorts of things? Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm the middle son of a violinist and an entrepreneur. Uh, so I have an older and a younger brother. I grew up here in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, for most of my life. And um, like I said, my dad, he's an entrepreneur. He started uh, a couple different companies. uh, And eventually the one that took off was an online education business. But growing up, you know, he was starting startups in the 90s in Phoenix. So you can imagine the VC capital availability uh, that he was running into back then. Uh, So he started a bunch of really interesting businesses, but ultimately unsuccessful businesses. And that helped me as a child Uh, actually swear off of entrepreneurship. When I graduated from high school, I made two promises to myself. I would never move back to Arizona and I would never become an entrepreneur. And I broke both of those promises uh, in short (laughs) order. (laughs) Um, But uh, to fast forward a bit, yeah, I went to college in New York City at Columbia and then um, uh, eventually got a graduate degree as well. Uh, I'm married, I'm celebrating um, 10 years uh, with my wife. Uh, We met actually here in Phoenix in high school, and we now have two sons uh, who are four and a half and two and a half, and we have our first daughter on the way in about a month and a half. So uh, a growing family. My my life is filled with noise and chaos, but a whole lot of love. And um, yeah, that's that's me personally. Yeah, that's great. So do you do you play any instruments? You said it sounds like your mom was the violinist. Yes. So uh, I learned piano and played clarinet, but uh, didn't really pursue it after you know the middle of high school. But I'd like to think that I've got you know some some music education that I can pass off to my kids. Yeah, 
I, I love music personally. Uh, it's a great love of mine, but I've never spent a whole lot of time, you know, learning instruments or anything like that. I love to sing, uh, but I've never been, you know, classically trained or anything like that. But I, I do have a daughter that's, uh, she actually just turned 20 and she started playing the cello pretty young and went all mm. the way through, through high school. And she's, She's a pretty gifted cellist, and I, I and now I just I look at her and I think, why in the world are you not still playing? Right? She didn't want to <laughs> yeah. study it in college. That's fine, but I just see it sitting there. And and for the most yeah. part, she doesn't live at our house, but she's home right now for for a month or two. Um, and it sits there in the corner, and I'm thinking, you know, you got, I don't know, multiple thousand dollar cello sitting in the corner. Yeah got this talent that's just completely going unused you know it's been well over a year since she has played it at all yeah i think it's a waste well you know what she's she has the strength of character that was built through the years of practice and playing it so that's going to stay with her no matter what even if the uh the cello gathers some dust yeah yeah no there's definitely some truth to that there's there's a lot of good things inside of your mind work ethic all those sorts of things that happen when you when you read music play an instrument all those sorts of things mm -hmm. sure. yeah yeah so i it was it was a great household to grow up in um my older brother played the cello um and so it was this nice combination of kind of risk-taking entrepreneurship kind of analytical stuff and then my mom who's more of an artist and you know a musician and uh, i feel like i got some good balance out of out of that kind of house yeah i'm sure you did so tell us what you studied at Columbia. So I went for a very uh, non-practical approach. And so I studied political science and anthropology. So uh, it was uh, just purely, I guess, an intellectual exercise. I learned a lot about leadership and about things like that, but um, it was definitely more of a liberal arts approach and not so much as a uh, uh, directly to the workforce kind of education. Yeah, well, I, I'm the same way. I actually have an undergraduate degree in French of all things. And so, nice. yeah, I, I tell people all the time. So of course, you know, logically I became a financial planner. Why would I do anything else with a French degree? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, yeah, I guess we both found our way. Eventually. Yeah, exactly. We did, we did figure it out. All right. So now just give us kind of a breakdown of after Columbia and then what kind of led you to where you are today. And then we'll jump into to Roller Shield. Yeah, for sure. So uh, when I was graduating, I had done some internships while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do as a career. And I had tried a bunch of things. I had tried nonprofits. I had tried large corporations, even a lobbying firm in D.C. And uh, through all of it, it just didn't resonate. And one of the big conclusions that I arrived at at the end of college was that as a kid looking at my dad being an entrepreneur, I had... And internalize that message as, oh, to be an entrepreneur is to just be unwilling to work for somebody and to just put your family through hardship while you're trying to pursue your kind of, you know, your kind of selfish dream of, of, of not working for somebody. And that's a very one dimensional and childish, uh, uh, you know, viewpoint. I think by the time I graduated college, what I had realized was that riskier paths, whether it's entrepreneurship and starting your own business or something else that's a little bit off the beaten path, it's much more about like the ability to create value and the ability to, um, you know, just produce something that otherwise wouldn't be there if it weren't for you. Um, and uh, I just felt a lot of conviction that, you know, at the end of the day, that 
my dad had pursued it because he he had visions of what to create in the world and what people could be blessed with, but if he were to create it. And by the time I graduated, I had realized that I, I wanted to do something risky and off the beaten path that would allow me to really be challenged and to create. Um, and that led me of all places to Detroit, Michigan, um, a city I'd never been to before, but I had heard about this city that had this really exciting and energetic community trying to bring the city back. And long story short, I ended up uh, finding a startup in Detroit to work at, um, actually through a program called Venture for America, which is like Teach for America, but for placing uh, graduates into cities that are maybe you know out of the coasts to help build and create jobs in those cities through entrepreneurship. So I ended up working for a very early stage startup there and then ended up joining the founding team of a, of a VC-backed coding bootcamp startup. So I was there for you know going from zero to one in that case. Um, and we ended up doing some great work, a workforce programs where we were training these folks who had no kind of economic path ahead of them. And they learned how to become software quality assurance analysts and got great jobs at great companies. Um, and in the process, I learned what it meant to go from nothing into a business that was that was cash flow positive and my takeaways were first that i hated the zero to one i hated product trying to try find trying to find product market fit it was just brutal it was you know to me this felt like i was walking around in the, dark, the darkness grasping at things and eventually we found product market fit and then i started to have a ton of fun because then i was leading i was growing an organization i was solving problems it was it was super difficult but it was really rewarding to me and my big takeaway from that was that i loved risk and i loved the grind of building a business of leading people of solving problems and creating value in the world but i you know i i hesitate to call me an entrepreneur because i i view entrepreneurs as people who Think of an idea that doesn't exist yet and then create it out of nowhere, not knowing if anybody wants to buy it, if it's solving any problem that people have. And so I give all the respect in the world of the people, including my dad and, and both of my brothers who have done this, where you just go from zero to one. And it's this journey that for, for them, I think is very rewarding that like that finding product market fit is almost like the, the, that end justifies this, this like brutal journey. And for me, finding product market fit was the beginning of the journey that I was interested in and the end of just a, a torturous experience that I didn't want to repeat. Um, and so that was my learning from that. And so I ended up going to business school. Uh, and while I was there learning about the idea of buying existing businesses, and I loved it because then that meant I could be a part of a smaller business I could help lead it and grow it and be on the front lines of it, but it already had identified and secured product market fit. It was already a, a growing and healthy organization, and I could just contribute my efforts to it and take the risk of, of buying it. And that started off my journey of, of what some people call entrepreneurship through acquisition. And, and for me, it just means buying small to medium-sized businesses and getting my hands dirty and helping continue the work that some other founder who I deeply respect, you know, did to get through that zero to one. Yeah. So Roller Shield is not your first acquisition, right? Correct. So tell us about 
the first or maybe the previous, whichever. I don't I don't remember if there's one in between or if there's just the one before this. But there were there were a couple almost. Um, but okay. the, the, I, I did so I, I acquired a uh, engineering services business in 2018 um, uh, that that we owned until uh, it was sold about a year ago uh, in May of of 2022. So that was the you know it started off with the process of searching for businesses in Arizona. Um, to who had owners who wanted to sell. And typically that looks like, you know, an owner who's uh, been running the business for a long time and wants to retire. And maybe we'll get into this further in the conversation, but when you're a business owner who's ready to hang up your spurs, uh, there are people who will see that as exclusively an economic and financial transaction. You have this thing that you built, it has value. You got to find somebody to buy it and then you can retire. And most of the business owners I meet and talk to and, and what I relate to myself is that a business is a deeply human enterprise and it is not exclusively a financial commodity. And uh, so I was looking for people and I continue to look for people who are business owners who are aware that um, money comes with faces, <laughs> that, that, that when, you, when you sell your business, um, it's a lot more than selling uh, an asset. And my, my value that I think I bring and what I communicated to business owners when I was searching originally in 2017 is that I'm a person, I'm not a financial institution. Um, I have a passion for the human element of, of businesses and I'm going to be here for a while. My family's all here in Phoenix. Uh, I, I love building businesses over a long period of time. And uh, I'm here to to grow a business that that you are ready to to sell and to, for your for your well deserved retirement. Um, and so I was searching around Phoenix for businesses that fit, fit that profile. And I ended up finding and buying this engineering services business in 2018, um, and it was a great experience. Uh, it was a little bit of a, of a bumpier journey than than I expected. Uh, which you know when I, when I bought it, I was I was really hoping for a longer uh, experience than than a four year ownership, but for a number of reasons, it made a lot of sense to have uh, you know the the sale happen. But with Roller Shield, this is a company that i'm I'm really excited about. I acquired it six months ago. I met the owners five years ago um, and just had stayed in touch with them and it was time for them to retire. and uh, so I, I I bought the business and I'm you know looking forward to growing it and making it thrive over decades. we've We've been around for forty five years, and I'm hoping to, to own it and grow it and run it for, for many decades to come. But we'll get into more of that. Yeah, for sure. So one quick question, then I'll make a comment, um, just because I find this interesting with different people that we interview on the show and then just in, in my own personal life. But what is your wife's background and what is her feeling about entrepreneurship, business ownership, the risk taking, all those sorts of things? It's a great question, and it's a very the, the answer makes a big impact. Um, I have I, I've been really blessed to to marry someone who grew up in a household that not of a of a uh, entrepreneur starting something from scratch, but certainly of uh, my wife's dad, uh, my father in law, um, has a long career in in running businesses and occasionally running you know hard businesses or businesses that need a lot of work. And so uh, my wife's, uh, you know, mental map 
of what it means to take risk is and, and to, to to lead businesses was one that was pretty accurate in terms of long hours occasionally and having to be on call whenever and traveling and, and all of that. But thankfully also seeing the upside and seeing how that hard work resulted in prosperity and um, a lot of great outcomes, both for her family and, and for the people who were on that journey with, with her dad. Um, so thankfully that meant that she just has an, a kind of innate understanding of how hard it is, what it takes, um, why it's meaningful along the journey and why it can be really beneficial at the end and, and what kind of value it can produce along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And she understands some of the difficulties that are involved as well and, you yeah. know, time away from the family, those sorts of things. And so it, it, I'm sure it certainly makes the journey easier as one who's been married almost 25 years. So we celebrate 25 years next month. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Congrats to you on the 10, but, um, you know, my, my wife did not come from an entrepreneurial family. Um, it was not, I mean, her, her father worked for the same company for 26 years Mm -hmm. is still living today on a pension, you know, and he's been retired longer than he worked. Must be nice. Right. (laughs) And so it's a completely different, you know, background. And so that, that has been a struggle throughout the years for us, for my wife to understand it, to feel comfortable with it. And anytime there's a change or a new acquisition or anything that we're kind of looking at, she got those same feelings of concern yeah. and reticence, you know, come back up to, uh, up to the surface. And so it, it does make a difference. And it's certainly something that you have to have a discussion with and an understanding before you jump into an acquisition or starting a new business regardless, because the divorce rate is high in our country, period, but it's higher for business owners. And, and yeah. that's a big part of it is that they're, they're not communicating about it and understanding, you know, w- yeah. what the impacts are to the family. Yeah, very, yeah it's a, a very good thing to keep in mind and, and the stakes are, are really high. Yeah. The other thing I want to make a comment on that you talked about is, you know, the human element. It's, it's not just a financial transaction. And, you know, in, in our business, we'll spend a lot of time with with business owners who have, have been operating the businesses that you're looking at buying, right? So they've operated a long time. They've built it from the ground up. Maybe there's 30, 35, 50 employees that work for them now. They're responsible for people's, you know, way of life and, you know, all sorts of things. But it, that business truly becomes their baby, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they they literally raised it from, from the beginning and uh, from birth, so to speak. And it's hard to walk away. And so mm-hmm. we spend time, you know, obviously on the financial side, are you ready? How much do we need to sell this for in order to be able to have you be financially independent for the rest of your life, blah, 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 right? But I give presentations throughout the country where I talk specifically about the emotional readiness of walking away from that business, mm-hmm. which I would, I would say is even more important than the financial readiness because phone stops ringing or you're the one, you're not the one making the decisions anymore. You're not the one in charge. You're not, it, you've got to be emotionally ready and, and know for you what's next. And then part of that is what you were talking about where you've got to feel comfortable that by you walking away the way that you're walking away, that the people that you care about are also being taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, it's one thing to decide and to be emotionally ready to for that 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 departure of this big thing from your life. 
but you you're going to be around afterwards. You're you're not going to stop caring about that business, and then more importantly, those people. And the good news is that, especially in the last seven to ten years, there is a really long menu of buyers that a a that a business owner has of different profiles of who they can sell their business to. It, it, you're, I mean, you're, if you're, it's a seller's market uh, when it comes to small to medium-sized businesses and, and selling them. And you've got to have a rubric for what matters to you um, because certainly the price matters. Um, you've got to know what, what, you're, what you're selling for. You've got to know what terms they are. Is it going to be all cash? Is it going to be, you know, uh, equity where you're going to be kind of joined at the hip to whoever's buying the business? And who, if they do well, you'll do well. And if they do poorly, you're going to be, you know, out of luck. Um, but it even gets down to just the, these individuals, the people who are going to be buying the business, who are going to be in the business, and how do they make decisions and what are their values? Um, and one thing that when I talk to business owners, I always try to emphasize is that when you're talking to people who are thinking about buying your business, truly just dive deep into what their incentives are. What are the things that are constraining them based off of where their money comes from and, and who they are? Because there is a, there's a really big difference between, I guess on one extreme would be just an individual who has a ton of money, who wants to buy your business entirely with their own money and they're going to run it for you. And then on the extreme end, somebody uh, who has a ton of money that they've already promised back to the original investors within three years of the, of the date that they're talking to you. No matter who that person is, if they're representing other investors' money that is guaranteed to go back to those investors in a short period of time, it doesn't matter what they think. They, they've made commitments. Uh, they, they, they have to get that money back to those investors. And they may be able to pay the highest price, but if you're the business owner, really explore what is the incentive of this person? What is the incentive of this buyer? Are they, are they you know, are you part of a larger portfolio where they're tempted or incentivized to just go for a zero or a or a hundred, kind of like just push your business to the max. And if it works out, great. And if it crashes and fails, that's fine because they've got 10 other businesses that that are probably going to work out. Or is it, you know, one of two or one of one that this person or this this firm is going to buy? Um, and so that's the whole education. It's just if you're if you're a business owner, you decide that you know how much money you need, like you said, decide that you're emotionally ready to no longer be the head guy or gal of the business. But then think about what, what you think of as important. What is your rubric for who's going to buy the business? Because I can tell you um, from firsthand experience what it feels like to be writing a recommendation letter for a wonderful employee who the people who bought your business you know, decided that wasn't actually that wonderful or didn't value them for who they were or what they were doing. And it doesn't feel great to, to be doing that, even though you're, you, you're safely out of the business or whatever it is. Um, you, you will, there is still going to be a business there that, that, that continues after you and it could go well or poorly. It could be in a, going in a way that enhances your legacy and makes you feel really proud and it can do the exact opposite too. And largely that has to do with who's going to be the buyer. Yeah. Yeah. So let's unpack that a little bit more, right? I mean, there, you know, there are pros and cons of, of each different kind of buyer. And you've kind of talked about some of those along the way without really saying, you know, the difference between a search fund or a VC or private equity group or an individual buyer or strategic, you know, there's a lot of different buyers out there and, and there are pros and cons to, to both. So 
maybe kind of unpack, you know, one or two pros and cons for what you consider the most common, or at least what your experience has been along. Yeah. Well, if we're talking about mature businesses, so businesses that are positive cash flow, that are profitable, that have been around for a while, we'll set aside VC, angel, kind of these more kind of startup-y capital sources. And then there's the spectrum of, you know, I'll I'll call it from an individual all the way to, let's call it a a, a private equity fund. Um, And I'll start with the private equity fund because I think a lot that that people are getting a lot more familiar with that term. And the the commonalities there are that 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 is a fund. It is usually uh, a couple managing partners who have raised money from limited partners, LPs. And so they say to these these investors, they say, all right, we're gonna take your money and invest it into a variety of businesses. We're gonna grow them. And we think that we're gonna hit a 30% annual return. You will get your money after seven years. So you're gonna, we're gonna call your capital, we'll invest it. You're not gonna see any of that money until seven years from now. And we will we are projecting that you'll get 30% returns every year over those seven years. And that's not really gonna change because if you're if you're that investor who's not gonna really be involved, you're giving that money and you, you, you wanna make sure you get that money back in seven years. You're not gonna say, well, you know what? If you, if you think you should run this thing for 20 years and that's the best use of the, these funds, you should do that. That's not how it works. It's seven years, get, get the money back to me. And those can be really exciting business owners because they have a lot of money and they're they're going to make money on growing your business as fast as possible. And so they're going to invest money to make that happen. It's not just that they're going to stamp down on the on the gas pedal without putting, you know, a little extra something in the fuel tank. They they will they will stamp down on the on the gas pedal and they will spend the money to put in, you know, whatever you want to put into the to the fuel to make it go faster. But every single business owner I've ever met knows that there's a reason why you don't grow a business to its maximum extent all the time. Growth is terrifying and chaotic and it breaks everything. It's very exciting and it creates a lot of value. But I never begrudge a business owner who's only growing 5% a year when theoretically they could grow 50% a year if they just you know marketed more. Growing like that, growing at, at, at 30% a year or whatever it is, is extremely challenging. And, and if people burn out, systems break, customers get upset. Um, and so that's the private equity side is that it's the, they, they have a mission, they have a, a legal obligation to grow whatever they buy very quickly and to return the capital at the end of that journey. Um, so I would say that's kind of the, the fund structure, the private equity. Then there's things called family offices, which is high net worth individuals. That's you know long long term capital usually. These are people who made a lot of money doing something else and now they're investing, and they'll have a professional team that works for that family that is investing the money for them. But the important thing is is that it's just their money, so they can invest for thirty years if they want, and there's nobody that they promise the money back to. And so that's nice. Um, they typically aren't the most proactive investors, so they're usually in family offices frequently invest in private equity funds or kind of are at a secondary level, but occasionally they'll they'll be the ones buying themselves. Um, there are things called search funds, which is what I was using back in 2018. That's a concept of someone gets some money, a little bit of money up front from investors to fund their search for a business. And then those original investors have a right to provide the capital for the, the purchase. So um, that in that sense, it's 
not a fund in the sense that there's no guaranteed you know return of capital if if they want to hold on to the business for a long time they can but the incentives of the searcher are that they won't see any big payout until they sell the business so the plus is that the fund doesn't have a promised end date where in seven years, the LPs need their money back and we're selling this business, whether it's going great or going poorly. Instead, it's the searcher, the person who finds the business, who buys the business and who then runs the business, who is thinking to themselves, I'm not going to get a big payout until I sell this business. And so that, that tends to be something where the hold ends up being around five to seven years because that's the incentive. And again, I, I don't want to sound like a, a, a broken drum, but uh, there's a real value to knowing these incentives if you're the business owner. Really explore, okay, you want to buy my business? Tell me who's, who, you know, who provided your money? What promises or obligations do you have to back to them? And what is your, what is your incentive structure? How do you make money as the person who's going to be running the business or buying it or whatever? Yeah. And then I'd say the final maybe category is kind of other types of, I guess you'd call them searchers. Um, that's kind of what I was for for this second acquisition, where it's really just me. Um, I have a little bit of money from from family and friends and other investors, but it's primarily me putting in a big chunk of my life savings to buy the business. Uh, and I'm using an I used an SBA loan to 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 finance the acquisition. And uh, with that kind of structure and with any of these structures, there's also choices for the business owner about providing a seller note to you know, help provide the financing for it. And you have a lot of power as the business owner to kind of bridge the gaps between some of these different profiles. So if you wanted to sell to somebody, let's say you want to sell to a key employee who you think is 100% ready to, to run the business. They probably don't have all the money that you need to, 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 to buy the business in cash from you. But what you could do is you could provide them a loan, basically. And then over the course of 10 years, they're buying the business from you at a market price, at a price that is completely fair. But because they don't have the capital, they need some help and they need some financing. Um, and so that's that's a way for business owners that I think is a little bit, you know, it's usually framed as, I just want to get the biggest cash offer I can up front and optimize for maximum cash now. I think that a lot of business owners would be well served to think about how they have a lot of power to decide what kind of buyer they want, and they can decide to provide seller notes or leave equity in the business. There's, there's a whole number of things that business owners can do to help make sure that the, they get the person they want or the type of person or type of entity they want to buy their business. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that that was a great summary of the different options and, and talking about the, you know, the pros and cons there, because that that is the reality. You, it, It's typically not just about the dollar amount. Every seller goes into it thinking it's about the dollar amount, but when you get into it and you start to look at all the different ways that it can be structured and the risk that you're taking on or not taking on and, and that each of those have a cost to them as well. And then, you know, I, I had a conversation with a client recently about, you know, th this is the name of your business today. That's important to you because you came up with that. There's a, there's a personal tie to you and that name. But if a private equity group came in today and they offered you your number, the number that you just told me was your number to walk away, and the very next day they fired all of your people and changed the name to this, which is just the opposite of what's important to you about your name, how do you feel? 
Yeah. Right. And we and we literally unpack that for about for about 20 minutes. You've got to understand what you're giving up if you're doing it a certain way and, and what control you've given up. And, and if you're okay with that, that's fine. There's not a right or a wrong answer here, right? Yeah. You just need to understand what it is that you're that you're committing to and potentially putting you, your name, your your background, your reputation, and your employees through. Yeah, and I think it might be worth mentioning. I think my friends who work in private equity probably want a little bit more of a fairer shake. And maybe the fairer shake is that if you're a business owner and you've still got seven years in you to run this business, selling the private equity and running it with, with private equity people who you really like. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of humans out there and it applies to private equity as well. They're bad and good. But let's say you find a private equity partner who you really just enjoy, your values are aligned, you get along with them, you think that you could you could ride this out with them for seven to 10 more years. They are, they're gonna inject so much capital into the business. They're gonna bring new skill sets and new vision. Like if you're a business owner and you, and you want to kind of have a accelerating final 10 years of, of your journey, and see what could become of your business if it was kind of put on onto jet fuel, that could be really exciting for you. And, yep. and you might be willing to go through the bumps that go with that. And maybe you do, you're gonna end up having to get rid of some people who you know, are, are not the right fits for that kind of a journey. But it's, it is entirely up to your preferences because you could take two business owners with the exact same business. And one of them, it's an it's a awesome idea to sell the private equity because they'll get a great ride out of it. They'll get some great cash out of it. And it might be the worst idea for the other business owner who wants legacy, who wants to finish, doesn't want to be in the business anymore after the next 12 months and wants their, their people to be taken care of. So it, it really, it's so individualized. The, the only shame is if you don't do that thinking. If you think, if you're selling to private equity, thinking that you're finishing in the next year and they're going to treat your people like they, like, like you do, that, like, that's the only wrong answer is that if you haven't explored, okay, what are their incentives? What are they going to do? What is the impact of that? And then if you've got clear eyes, then more power to you. Yep. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Cause that, that is a fair assessment and there can be, it really comes down to what you want to do. Like you said, if you want to have that exciting journey where they're injecting capital and you're, you're building something that you maybe dreamt of, but you weren't sure quite how to do it, or you didn't have the access to the capital to do it. And you can be involved in that that can be a great way to finish your career and kind of go out on a high. But at the same time, typically when you're doing that, you're taking some chips off the table, right? So they're buying somewhere between 50 and 80% typically in that type of a scenario. So you're selling that much and then holding on to call it the remaining 20 to 50%. And we see it all the time that at the end of those seven years, that 20 or 50% that you retained was actually worth more than your first. Yeah transaction right so it can be a great thing financially and it can be fun to do it along yeah. the way if you have the right partners exactly yeah absolutely all right so uh let's see here oh, let's kind of go for you step by step as to how you think somebody who's listening that's thinking i want to acquire a business what, what should be the first steps and things that they should be looking at, thinking about? It's a great question. And it's something that is becoming increasingly popular. And I think that's because there's a lot of folks who started businesses in the 70s and 80s, and they're ready to retire. And there's a lot of businesses out there that are going to be changing hands. And there's a lot of people who want to get out of the corporate world and to, to 
have something that can they can call their own. Um, so that's now the flavor is just like how there's so many flavors of buyers. There are so many flavors to what it means to buy a business. Um, if I were talking to somebody who's really just thinking, okay, hey, conceptually, I want to buy a business. The first questions I would ask are, you know, what kind of business do you want to run? Well, I guess the first question is, do you know what you're doing at all? Because there's a lot of people who might be, you know, lifelong like uh, corporate folks who dream of buying a business, but when they actually, if they were to live my day or any any business owner's day for a couple of days, they would immediately realize they would hate the job. So first is like really get out of the abstract and into the reality of, do you really want to be an operator and leader in a business that's smaller, medium sized? Um, but then you want to figure out how big you want it um, because there's a huge difference between a 100 or 200 person employee, employee business and being the leader and owner of that business and being the leader and owner of a 10 employee business. And then from there, you would then decide how you, how you can structure it based off of how much money you have. Um, because if you're looking for a large company, you know, that's uh, call it, you know, $5 million in profit or $3 million in profit, you're going to probably need a lot of outside investors uh, and debt partners. And so then you're in this kind of sophisticated world where you're going to need a lot of folks who are by your side to provide capital and expertise. And so then I would encourage you to look into search funds as an, a, a method of doing that, because there's a whole community of investors and providers and, and you know, partners who, who are doing this. And it's, that's really exciting. If you're more experienced in terms of, if you have two decades of, of experience in an industry or a field, then I would encourage you to look into what's called the um, independent sponsor uh, model. And that's where you can partner with a family office, like what we were just talking about, and you can find a business and then maybe you just have the family business, the family office provide all the capital and you can run the business. Um, so that's on a larger side. But if what you're interested in is the idea of a company that has 10 or 25 or 30 employees, that's more like a million and a half in profit or less, then there's you know this whole world of SBA loans um, that are these really um, favorable um, methods of financing where you can you know you personally guarantee the loan because that that's a little bit scary. Um, but on the other hand, it's a way for you to buy a business that's relatively highly levered that isn't as risky. So as, as an, you know, an example would be you know SBA seven A acquisition loan is a ten year loan, and most businesses can only access a five-year commercial loan, especially for an acquisition, unless you're talking about a, a big one. And so if you think about buying a business that's 70% debt with an SBA loan, because it's double the term of a typical commercial loan, 70% sounds like a really levered up business. But if you think of it as a 35% leverage in terms of what the actual burden on the business is on a month-to-month -month basis, it's a lot less risky, and it's because the SBA is a government program that it allows for more stability um, and allows for those longer terms. So that, that would be a whole world to explore as well as the idea of doing an SBA loan to buy a business for yourself. Um, but there are so many different flavors because you can envision a world where if you have a business that you really like, you could be an apprentice to the owner for a year and then buy it slowly over you know, five years after that or something. You know, there, there, are, you, there are so many ways to buy a business. The really important things are know that you actually want to do that, understand what size of the business you're looking for and therefore the type of financing available, and then um, just go for it because it is a wonderful journey. And it is a, a very meaningful thing to continue the journey that somebody else started.
Um, in my case, you know, at Roller Shield, it's 45 years of history, and I get to be the one to carry it forward um, and to steward it into the future. So it's, I, I think it's an extremely meaningful um, career path. Yeah. So maybe just give us a little bit more information for the listener's sake on the SBA loan side, right? So you talk about the 7A version. It's a 10-year loan, which, you know, it's it's shorter than a mortgage, right? And, and yep. a lot of these acquisitions, you're, you're, you're acquiring a business for more than you have for your own mortgage. Yep. So there is, you know, that added risk. And you're looking at that number and thinking that that's, you know, that's risky, but kind of break down, you know, not that you know every aspect of it, but break down what's a typical down payment percentage? How do the interest rates work? Is it principal and interest repayment? You know, those sorts of things. Yep. So those listeners understand that. Yeah, so the SBA 7A loan is uh, an acquisition loan. It is meant for this kind of an acquisition. Um, and like I said, it's a 10-year term. Um, you, the, But because it's, it's, let me back up to how the government's involved in this loan. The Small Business Administration, the SBA, provides a 75% guarantee to local commercial banks for that loan. So the government basically says, all right, we want to incentivize you, local bank, to make loans to, to people who might seem like they're a little bit riskier than the norm. But to kind of make it worth your while, we will say that if that person goes down, if that business dies, we will compensate the bank for 75% of the loan value. So it's a lot less risky to the, to, the, to the bank. That also means that the banks are the ones making the loans. It's not the SBA. Um, and that's an important distinction. So if you want to look into this, I really would recommend a preferred SBA lender. Um, I've worked with a handful of them. I know Live Oak Bank is one, First Bank of the Lake. Um, there, there's a bunch of them that are on a list of approved of like people. You can actually pull the numbers on how many loans each bank makes each year under the SBA 7A program. And so I would just go with a bank that, that does hundreds or you know, dozens of these a year. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of mechanism behind it. So that allows the bank to do a 10-year term. And then the interest rate can be fixed or variable. That's up to the bank. <clears throat> uh, in, in most cases, it's variable. And in this interest rate environment, you kind of don't want to, this, this, is a great, this is a great loan that you may not want to refinance because you've got a 10-year term. So uh, having a variable in this environment actually is kind of you know, acceptable, whereas two years ago, I would not have been excited about a variable. Um, and the, the rate is, it's not the lowest rate, but it's also not astronomical. Um, it's, you know, it, it's, a, there's a slight premium on it that compared to typical commercial debt, but it's not unaffordable. Um, and it is principal and, um, and, and interest payments every month. Um, what's interesting is that you can pay down the principal and they will, and, and the, the, uh, the payments will change. So unlike your mortgage, where if you're going to pay down your principal faster, your, your payment stays the same. You just kind of end paying, you make making payments earlier. With the SBA 7A, if you pay off half your note, uh, half your loan right away, that your payments go down by, by half. Um, so that's, that's a nice mechanism as well. And there's no prepayment penalty or anything like that. Um, but it, anybody who owns more than 20% of the business has to sign the personal guarantee. Um, and that's usually that that's the hangup that a lot of people have and what I had for a long time, um, because, you know, in my example, this is not uncommon. You know, the principle of the of the loan is more than my net worth. And so the, the personal guarantee is less about recouping funds. And remember, federal government is the one backing the loan for the majority. 
but they really want to know that your skin is in the game. Um, and so that's one of the, the key things about the, the SBA 7 8 program. Yeah, but it's 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 a great program and, and and it's been around for decades. Yeah, been around for a long time. It's it's the government's version or way of of backing business owners and trying to you know push forward the building of jobs in in our country. So, last question that you didn't hit on was uh, what's a typical down payment they're looking oh, at for an yeah, SBA so loan? I think the minimum down payment is. I, I technically the minimum is 5% if the seller is putting down some money, but I think in general, think of it as a 10% down payment. Um, I would, you know, but what I did was, for example, 70% of my acquisition was an SBA loan. Another 10% was a seller note. Uh, and then 20% of the acquisition was equity. Um, so, and, and something that I should note, because I think a lot of business owners, when you talk to your banker, they and if or you know let's say somebody wants to buy your business and they say they want to do an SBA 7a loan and you talk to your banker or your lawyer you're going to hear their first thing they're going to say is oh it's going to take six months the SBA is a disaster it's going to be horrible the paperwork will be insane and that is true if you don't go if, if the person who's buying the business and getting the loan is not working with a very experienced preferred SBA lender in my case I close my 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 acquisition of Roller Shield took 90 days now that was, and the only reason it took that long was because we wanted to close at year end. We could have closed at 75 days. And that was with an, an SBA loan. It, it did not take six months. You know, if, you just got to follow the directions and be with a banker who's done this, who does this multiple times a week. But if you go with a banker who does this twice a year and, you, and you're not locked in, that, that could easily take six months. So I just wanted, sometimes it gets a bad rap among business owners and, and the people who are advising them. It can be terrible. But if you are working with a great bank and the person who's is on top of it, it does not have to slow down um, an acquisition. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Matter of fact, uh, last episode or maybe two episodes ago, my business partner Landon and I uh, recorded an episode together, and we talked about an acquisition that he recently made using a NSBA seven A loan, and I believe that they were approved and ready to fund in. 45 to 60 days. Yeah, it does not. It does not have to be brain damage. But yeah. every it seems like every lawyer and banker who's involved in buying businesses has at least one horror story about it, and they tend to grab onto that. So yeah. don't don't lose confidence because some people have made the poor decision of doing an SBA loan with a banker who has not done it very often, and therefore it's like you know, half a year. Yeah. All right, so I think final question I've got for you today, and then and then I'll have you tell us a little bit about what Rolo Shield is, so that people who are listening that may benefit from your services can can learn about that as well. But in your opinion, what are the most common mistakes that owners make when they're trying to sell their business? Meaning, what are they doing that's actually scaring buyers off? That's a great question. So the things that I come across most often when I'm talking to business owners. Um, first is customer concentration. Um, that, that is the fastest way for a deal to get kind of sideways is if you have any single customer that is above 10%, or even if you say, you know, your top three to five customers, if they're more than 20% of your revenue, that's just going to scare everybody. Um, and you should just know that either you're going to have to take a haircut on the price or get really kind of creative with what, what, what to do about that. Or if you've still got a few years before you want to sell, just start diversifying. I know 
And I, as a business owner, I know how nice it is to have these big customers. You know them super well, you, you're serving them super well, and they're growing. And it's not your fault that they doubled their order this year and they're now 40%. Like that, that's, that's a great thing to have as a business owner. But just be aware of how people uh, who are trying to buy a business see it. They see it as if, that, if one person at that one customer has a friend who has a business in the same industry and wants to send their business there, all of a sudden, you know, the, you're in a world of hurt. So that's, that's probably the most common thing that, that comes in the way. Um, I'd say the second thing is just kind of who are your key employees? Um, because if, well, first of all, if you're the key employee, if, if your business cannot function, if you were to go on a vacation for two weeks and leave your computer and phone at home, uh, if your business is going to be like hurting when you come back, you are not ready to sell the business. You've got to document things. You've got to hire people or empower people to make sure that, you know, if you're going to sell your business, know that you can take two weeks off and it's not going to be a problem. You, you still, it's fine if your company relies on you and maybe you're an expert about something and, and you, you still are the owner. But the point yeah. is you don't want to be so involved in the business that a couple weeks of your absence is, is going to cause problems. Um, so really try to, to do that. And then if there's any key employees, again, small businesses, you, you can't have 100 employees and you've nicely spread all the risk across everybody so that nobody can leave without causing a problem. But if you do have a couple of key employees, you know, making sure that everything's documented and then looping them in or, or it, as part of the transaction, having some sort of retention bonus or some, some way for the buyer to say, you know what, I'm not worried that this one person is going to leave on day one and, and suddenly the business is imploding. So yeah. I'd say, you know, customer concentration, I'd say key person, including you as, as a risk. Um, and then just try to have, you know, the, the cleaner your financials are, the better. Um, it's worth investing. I know, I know how awful it is to pay CPAs to do things like reviews and audits <laughs> and it's, it can be horrible, but um, it, you will get so much value. If your books are clean, if you don't have a really professional bookkeeper and accountant, start doing that now because the cleaner your books books are you're going to be buying yourself more people who want to buy your business therefore more leverage about what terms you get the messier it is the more people are going to be scared away from the onset and the more room there is for negotiation and kind of if there's lack of clarity then that means a, an area for buyers to start negotiating and if you've got nice clean books and, and, and the way that they get unclean is by not having the right people clean, like cleaning them, organizing them, you know, you don't really need to do an audit, but an audit would help, but certainly reviewed financials by an external firm. Um, but then also it's, you know, personal expenses. One of the, the, one of the most common issues is if you've been running a ton of personal expenses through your business, you might think that it's obvious that those are personal and that they won't be needed after you, the next person buys the business. But every banker and lawyer and service provider will say that, you know, who's to say that all those credit card charges of you going traveling isn't actually, you're traveling with key clients and that's how you retain clients and the next owner needs to spend that kind of money to retain clients. Um, or all those meals that you say are just like your family, you know, going out to eat are actually, you know, your sales reps. Um, you know, having key, you know, key meetings. So um, one of the things that, for example, Roller Shields owners did was that they just, they had a hard line of nothing personal went through the business. And that meant that I, as the buyer, had a simpler time. There was no negotiation about whether X expense should be counted against the financials or if that really should be put back in. 
the, the cleaner it is, the less, the fewer things that you have to like add back and to say, well, actually, if I weren't the owner, I wouldn't have hired this person uh, because, you know, I only hired them because of X, Y, Z. And it's like, well, if you're going to hire your daughter-in-law to be at the business, like they should be doing, she should be doing a real job. And if she's not, there's no way you're going to prove that she wasn't doing a real job uh, yeah. to, to the satisfaction of a buyer. So I'd say that's, that's probably the three, the third biggest thing is just keep clean books, keep personal expenses out of the business. If you want to sell, I, I'm not here to, to commentate on if you, if you're putting personal stuff through the business, the point is if you're trying to sell it, you will, you will end up having a harder time and a lower price, the more that there's personal stuff going through the business. Yeah. Yeah, and I would I would just add that on the on the flip side of that, if you're getting ready to sell the business yourself and you are running all of those personal expenses through the business, you, you better what you better darn well understand what you are running through the business and how that affects your own personal finances as well. Because yeah. you may be planning to need eight thousand dollars a month to live. But in reality, you didn't factor in all the stuff that was going through the business that you're now going to have to pick up on your own. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be able to afford that as well with uh, with your own financial calculations. Yeah, that's, that's so, very true. Yeah, looks like my video froze. So I'm not sure what's going on there, but it sounds like you can still hear me. So yeah, I can still hear you. We'll, we'll keep rolling for that. But um, the other thing I'll just mention real quick is, you, you know, you talked about if if you can't walk away from the business for two weeks and leave your computer and phone at home without having a problem, uh, you're, you're probably not ready to, you know, we look at that as owner dependence, right? And we actually take our clients through an owner dependency index score to find out just how dependent that business is on them, because it is, it's it's a factor as to whether or not you're ready to sell and it, and it can affect the, the sale price regardless. Yeah, and, and also it's it beyond that, it also affects your level of freedom post-close. Because if you envision a world where you have a president running the business for you and you're basically kind of a board member and you check in once a quarter, you will be you will definitely be able to sell that business and walk away basically day one or day day 30 because it's it's this kind of thing that is operating on its own. Um, if you are dependent on the business, you might still be able to sell, but are you ready to be required to work there for three years under new owners? Because that's what they're gonna, that's gonna be expected and required is to say, well, it looks like this business kind of depends on you. If you wanna sell it, then you're not leaving. Yeah. And a lot of business owners will chafe at that, rightfully so. So, you know, it might seem expensive to hire a president and get them all ramped up and that's a big salary. But what's it worth it to you to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to sell my business. You've got everybody. It's a full package. You don't need me. And I'll see you, you know, 30 days after close and I'll be off to my vacation. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's uh, let's close this out for us, Derek, and, and just tell us, you know, what Roller Shield actually does day to day for people who may be listening and say, oh, well, it was a really cool interview, but I could also be interested in what Roller Shield offers. Yeah, for sure. So, so Roller Shield, we fabricate and install external rolling shutters. So uh, these are the metal shutters that are motorized that roll down over a window or a door. So most people think of them as maybe things you would put in front of a storefront so to protect a store after closing hours. And that is what we do. But we also do a lot of residential work because these are great security products. Um, you can just roll them down when you go off on vacation or when you're away or even overnight. Um, but they're also great insulation. So in Arizona, because of the heat, when you close these things, it blocks about 70% of the heat from getting into your windows or through your doors. 
um, and they're great privacy and blackout. Right now on, on my house, when my kids are napping, it is completely black in their room because the shutter blocks it all out. Um, but so that's what Roller Shield does. We've done it for 25 years, or sorry, 45 years. Um, and uh, we fabricate here in Phoenix, we install in Phoenix and we ship nationwide. Um, and then my kind of investing side of the, of the world is Chaparral Capital. Um, and that's really just me. And I'm, I'm still looking around always for great businesses in Arizona and in, throughout the Southwest, because I just love this stuff. I love taking businesses that have a great history and then being getting my hands dirty, helping them grow for a long time. And so I guess if, if any of your listeners are interested in rolling shutters, go to rollashieldoneword.com. Um, and if you're interested in uh, talking about you know selling your business or even talking more in depth about what the different pro profiles of buyers are, I'd love to chat with you. I love talking to business owners. This, this podcast is a great example of, of hearing from people like you. Um, so you can reach out to me. I'm uh, at Chaparral Cap, C-H-A-P-A-R-R-A-L-C-A-P.com. Um, and hope to maybe meet some people through this and I just wish you the best, whether you're looking to buy a business, looking to sell a business, or just looking to keep growing your business. It's all a great adventure. Yeah, very cool. Really, really appreciate the, the information. Appreciate, you know, talking with you, Derek. I think that you have a great way of explaining things and, and making people understand, you know, what may seem as complex topics and, and making them simple and, and easy to understand. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, and then just just last thing, just kind of give the listeners an idea, like a basic window on a normal, you know, house. Um, what does it cost to put a shield on on that window? Yeah, so for a motorized uh, shield on a typical bedroom window, that would be around fifteen hundred to seventeen hundred, I would say. Um, and, but we also have folks who put you know enclose a whole patio, and that might be you know a bit more than that, around five thousand or something like that. Gotcha. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks again so much for being here. Really appreciated the time together. And now all of a sudden my video is back up. So, you know, that's great. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for having me and, and all the best to your listeners as well. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Derek. listening to tycoons of small biz a podcast for small business owners by small business owners join us next week for an introduction to another great tycoon and be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content